Welcome to The Driven Entrepreneur, where we sit down with visionaries, trailblazers, and entrepreneurs and discover why and how they do what they do. We'll get the backstory, plus plenty of life and business lessons along the way. Here's your host, Matt Browning. Hey, welcome back to The Driven Entrepreneur. It's Matt Browning. Super excited to be with y'all uh, today. Thanks for tuning in, subscribing, or moving that radio dial as you always do uh, to listen to some great origin stories of entrepreneurs and, and really get inspired, motivated, and we're going to learn some tools and some mindsets and strategies along the way. You know, one of the things that I've been seeing so much, I'm excited because it's summertime and it's summer 2021. We're coming out of, you know, for all intents and purposes, this global pandemic time. And because we're coming out of it, I'm watching businesses open back up and some of them have been full steam ahead for a year. Some of them are kind of still figuring that out, whatever the industry is. One of the biggest questions that is coming up a lot is, what does the workforce look like as far as flexibility coming into you know geographic locations, remote? Are we doing a hybrid? There's lots of opinions, lots of ideas out there, no shortage of blogs and articles and quote-unquote expert opinions, but I wanted to get one for myself. So this week we have uh, the founder of Work Market, Jeff Wald. He's an uh, enterprise software platform creator. He founded Work Market uh, 10 years ago, and a couple years back it got sold to ADP. So that was. I also want to talk about the process of growing a tech company and then moving into acquisitions. This has happened a couple of times. He also founded a company a little while back called Spinback that got purchased by Salesforce. Um, he's had a whole career in finance, in uh, venture capital work, working with JP Morgan and some of the big, big names out there. He's also an active angel investor, a startup advisor, so helping other startups just like himself, and a former auxiliary unit officer of the New York Police Department. Jeff's the author of End of Jobs, the new best-selling book, End of Jobs, The Rise of On-Demand Workers and Agile Corporations. Super excited to have Jeff. Are you there, my friend? I am here, Matt. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, me too. So are you still in New York right now as we speak? As we speak, I am sitting in New York City. Absolutely. How is it feeling out there? Do you feel like it's also getting back to, to normal or people coming outside? What's going on as of kind of summer 2021 for you? You know, I got a ping from a friend the other day who's not New York City, and she wrote, I heard New York City is unchained. And I thought, you know what? That pretty much accurately describes it. New York City is uh, is unchained. Everyone is very excited to get back to quote unquote normal as as best they can. That is outstanding. Is it? Last time I was out there, um, my favorite New York is walking with the herd from corner to corner on the small streets of Manhattan. Are are the herds still gathering and 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 walking across when the light turns yellow? The herds are still gathering. They wait <laughs> for the lights and they all walk across in unison. Uh, no more social distancing in that regard. The only place people are will still wearing masks and distancing is uh is on the subways subway sure yeah. <laughs> well thanks for the uh thanks for the quick update from the northeast we appreciate it hey jeff you you started off doing like finance work and tech work did you have like a one particular love uh something that really made you want to move forward when you think about business when you think about yourself as an entrepreneur was it always tech in your heart was it finance in your heart are you more into the investing startup like strategy What's the part of startup business that really kind of gets you going? Well, I'll tell you this. You know, as you pointed out, I started my career at JP Morgan and then I went over to a venture firm and 
After a meeting one time, my boss pulled me aside. He's like, you have to stop fawning over these people. I was like, what? What do you mean? He's like, dude, in every meeting, you just sit there and you tell these people how great they are. I'm like, but they are. They're so great. What they're doing is changing the world. It's so amazing. He said, you know, Jeff, we have to negotiate with them. And you, so you can't spend the whole time telling them they're so great. He said, if you think they're so great, you should go do it. And that was what kind of pushed me out, uh, pushed me out of the nest, if you will, to start my first company. Wow. So you, you realize maybe you're a little more in love with solving problems, creating new solutions. The, do, will you, would you see yourself as more of the creative investor entrepreneur or more of the, um, you know, let's crank it, let's get down the road and kind of the, I don't know, I guess I'd almost say the Gary V, like the, the hustle, the, the moving forward, the taking action. And I'm sure you have a little bit of both, but do you have a kind of a, a personality when it comes to that startup, more creative artist or more get or done? Look, I am a personally more get or done kind of person, right? Like, hey, everyone, let's get out, everyone get out of my way. We're, get, we're getting this done. You're on board or you're overboard. However, to your point about what motivates me, it is this notion that this is what, to me, what, what truly makes America great is that there is this system in place where if someone says, you know what, I think there's a better way. We have all kinds of processes, all kinds of institutions that will support that person to go and change a product, a process, an industry, whatever it is, a technology. And you know what, Matt, if they're right, they're going to make a ton of money. And if they're wrong, and more often than not, they're wrong. They're going to pick themselves up, they're going to dust themselves off, and they're going to try again in a different way. And that, to me, is just amazing and incredibly motivating. You know, when I hear that, my, my heart flutters a little bit inside. I get really excited because I am I am such a huge advocate for free market, for entrepreneurism. One of the reasons I love it so much is that... It's to me, it's the most organic way to evolve as people and work together. It's real simple. If you have a business that you have bad practices, eventually people stop supplying you or stop working with you and then it doesn't work anymore and you're out of business. If you have great practices, if you have a good product, if you have something that people really need, it grows. It's the most natural, almost an ecosystem. I absolutely love that. Do you feel like we should, this might be a silly question, but I just kind of want to get your way in. Do you feel like there's any areas where we should have more governmental control or more, um, yeah, at, at any level of let government? Me, let me stop you there. No, yeah. no, hard, hard no on that. I mean, look, the government has an important role to play. I am certainly not a libertarian in the view that we should have almost no government. Government's got an incredibly important role to play in setting the rules and looking out for those that are being left behind and setting those safety nets and things like that. But if you're asking what areas should the government run or operate in, as little as humanly possible. Yeah, as soon as they can, as soon as we can balance uh, the budget in Congress, we'll go ahead and let them start toying with the finances here. Let's move on so we don't get too much political hate tweet. You can send that uh, to at Matt Browning if you if you get angry, if you're too far on the left or right or whichever side. Don't really care, Jeff. You, uh, your newest book, The End of Jobs: The Rise of On-Demand Workers and Agile Corporations. What I, I don't have it in my notes here. What year? What month year did that first come out? Because it's first interesting the timing. In June of 2020. Perfect timing for that. When yeah. you when you first started watching, obviously no one can plan the global pandemic, and you know that's a crazy moment. But the question I really want to come to is, you know, not so much, hey, what should we have done or, or what did it mean, but what does it mean for the future? And I want to look at kind of the next 12 months. Uh, 18 months together. One of the things I keep hearing a lot of is mostly from the worker standpoint, people thinking, hey, 
look how well this worked remotely, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And now we don't got to come back. And I feel like the employer side, um, small business owners, especially, you know, people like me, I'm like, well, it depends. Maybe I want to save the office space. Maybe I can make it work. But is there a space? Well, first off, is there a simple answer to the question? What do you think the future looks like? Is it back to business as usual? Is it a hybrid? Is remote the future? What's your take on that to start? So my take on it and my take is based, Matt, on history. It's based on data. It's based on a lot of conversations with the men and women that are doing the labor force transformations or doing labor resource planning at, uh, at their companies worldwide. And that is we are going to have a hybrid workforce. And I think your point is incredibly well taken. Look, what works for one company in one industry with specific job functions does not mean it works for everybody. You have to find out what works best for you, for your team, for your your industry and things like that. And so, look, this we are certainly not going to go back to the way things were, but we're certainly not going to go to an entirely high, you know, entirely remote workforce. There'll be a mixture and it'll be a mixture that varies based on different job functions, based on different companies, based on different industries. And we will settle into a new normal. What, what's your opinion on, well, how do I want to ask this? I feel like there's people that I've been hearing um, in the workforce that are kind of trying to take a little bit of a, a bullheaded stance. Hey, I've mm -hmm. worked remote for the last 18 months and I don't want to go back to the office. And almost like saying, hey, you know, if you're going to force me back, I don't want to. And, and I get it if it was safety, but these same people are going, they're going to the cinema, they're going to ball games, they're going to the grocery store, they're going to Target, but they don't want to come back to work. What's your, I, I guess, uh, advice to a small business owner? You know, how do we play that line of, well, gee whiz, I'm, you know, I'm paying the paycheck and I, this is what the position is. So if you don't like it anymore, you can move on and I'm going to find someone else because there's a ton of great qualified people out there. Or do you, do you think the employers need to have a little more flexibility in how they approach that? You know, what does that conversation look like when it's like, hey, we're opening up, come on back to work, guys? Well, there's a difference between the manager or the business owner that says, I just want FaceTime, right? I want to see everybody. And you want to say to that person, I mean, do you really need that? I mean, what you need is, is you need jobs getting done. You need work getting completed. Where somebody does that, is it really relevant? And then there are other business owners or managers that, that genuinely need their people there. And so you got to figure out what works best for your business, but you need to do it in the context of what is the market allowing or demanding right now. If you are forcing your workers to come nine to five, five days a week, and they don't really need to, you are going to be at a disadvantage in the in the market for talent, you're going to lose in the market for talent. And if that's a risk you're willing to take, then okay. My main advice here is be aware of the trends, be aware of what is necessary in your business. And do you want to be an employer of choice? And if you feel like you can get by with any talent, then do whatever the heck you want. If you need the best talent, then you're going to have to be flexible if, you know, if possible. And, and, thanks, Jeff. And this is this is great already. Thanks for just like jumping right in with me. You know, from the from the worker standpoint, then let's say I'm a guy who have been in my sweatpants for 15 months, 18 months. I've been enjoying having breakfast with my kid and, you know, working a hybrid schedule as well. Right. Um, a lot of the, the remote workers with that oftentimes comes flexibility of schedule. So now I'm not working from my house nine to five. I'm working 10 to one. I take a long lunch. Um, I work four to six. I have dinner with the family. I work 
from 10 o'clock to midnight for a couple things. You know, like people can really be creative. Um, when you're that person, what's the stance that, that they want to take? So I want to stay remote. I want to work from my house. Is it time then at that point? Do you, I guess, do you feel like there's going to be enough opportunity that will be remote for, for real jobs? You know, whether it's executive or director level, like higher level stuff, not so much the outsourcer. I think there's always going to be space for, you know, talent, the drill down skill sets, you know, graphic artists, uh, you know, video editors, etc. But when I'm thinking about more of the leadership roles and more executive roles, someone high level, they're wanting to stay home with the family. They've got a taste of the quote unquote good life. What do you say to that person? Is there going to be enough out there or do we need to get a little more flexible ourselves with looking for hybrid employment opportunities? Well, look, I think the byword of flexibility is going to apply for the employer and the employee, but you know, Matt, we should, we should dive into data here, right? The data first and foremost tells us that, only 42% of the U.S. workforce can work remotely. So this conversation starts, its pure starting point is at a minority of the work. 58% of workers, whether in, your, in manufacturing or logistics or transportation, can't work remotely. So they're not even in this conversation. So of that 42%, what percent actually do want to have a completely remote workforce where they don't want to go in the office at all? The data would tell us incredibly few. I mean, Matt, we're, we're a social animal. I mean, we may enjoy time to time working more flexibly, but we also want to be in the office. We want to be with our colleagues. Like, I couldn't agree more, man. That. I couldn't agree most more. People... My, my wife, it loves me and it cannot wait <laughs> now that I've been getting back to the office again. She's like, when are you going to go again? I want to, I want a chance to miss you. <laughs> so, and then there is, of course, that people do want to get out of their homes. And so, you know, we are talking about a very, very small percentage of the workforce that actually doesn't want to ever go back, which is why the flexibility is super important because there's also a very small percentage of the workforce that wants to go back nine to five, five days a week. There are some, but it's a small percentage of the workforce. That middle 90% of the people that are capable of working remote want to work in a more flexible way. And there's no reason many employers, not all, not even most, but many can't allow them to do it. But again, this is a job function by job function, company by company, industry by industry discussion that needs to be had. And you need to think about what do I need, right? Do I need people to be there or do I just need stuff getting done? And if stuff's getting done and you're doing it from 10 to 12, because that what's worked for you, any manager that doesn't like that, I'm going to ask them, what is it that, you know, they really, what's, what's their goal? Like, why would they not want their people getting work done in the most efficient way possible? So would one hybrid opportunity, let's say, okay, so I want the work done as efficiently as possible. Something I've, and I'm just thinking for myself, I have a small business with a handful of people uh, on the team. And I think one of the things that I've missed by having different states, uh, people representing different states and also being all on Zoom and all on phone, et cetera, is the work gets done, right? So the spreadsheets and the delivery and et cetera, customer service. But the thing that seems to be missing is a little more higher level strategy, the quote unquote working on the business, not in the business. Is that a good place to maybe look at those hybrids? Like, hey, I want, you know, let's come in and we'll have Monday meetings and we'll be face to face and we're going to do strategy, et cetera. But then maybe Tuesday and Thursday, you're going to work from home or having that kind of flexibility. Is that maybe one way to, to break it up depending on the industry? It is completely one way to break it up. You know, hey. when you think about that creativity, those serendipitous bump ins, those interactions with your colleagues that lead to a spark of an idea. Those things are really, really good. They're powerful. And you want those to happen. 
But when you're working in the business and you're just getting stuff done, in some cases, it doesn't need to be there. These are conversations that I, I've had the pleasure of having with the CEOs of very large companies pre, pre-pandemic. And I would say to them, you know, why do you make people come to the office? And they would say, well, I think magic happens when everyone's in the office. I think productivity equals presence. And I would say to them, well, look, every single study that's been done on this says the opposite. So like, what data are you pointing to with this notion of productivity equals presence? And they would look at me and they would say, well, it's just my gut. I, I heard it. I saw it on a social meme one day. <laughs> Yeah. I'm like, oh, it must dude, be true. Like, come on, man. I, I I can't have that conversation with you. We can't have an intelligent discussion if your counterpoint is my gut says it. Because all the data tells us that remote workers are more productive, are happier, are healthier, have a higher retention rate, and all these other things. So anybody that's just saying, no, no, everyone's got to be in the office, I'm going to tell you, you're going to lose the war for talent. But that being said, to our earlier point, there are some industries and some job functions where that is the necessity. So, okay, I get it. But for most, that, that just isn't the case. Yeah, that, that's, that's really interesting that I've never actually heard productivity equals presence or presence equals productivity. What, what, what I think is similar to what you're talking about, Jeff, is when, when you look at presence in, in an office, one of the things that I've had, and, I, and I've had several different physical offices for several different companies over the last 20 years with different size workforces, one of the things that I've always been frustrated by is presence very often equals the reverse of productivity. Now, there is nothing wrong, right? Like we want to have culture and we want to have relationship and we want to be able to encourage and build people up. But it's the I'm trying to get something accomplished and then but I got to walk past someone else's desk and then there's five minutes of how you doing. And again, nothing wrong with saying how you doing. But when that happens with everybody, you walk by and then the break room and and not to mention commuting. To me, I see a lot of that disappears. And instead of working eight hours to accomplish these three major tasks, I could work three hours and accomplish the same task because I'm just sitting down and doing the work and then closing the laptop and moving on, plus feeling refreshed and all that. So that sounds like it, absolutely correct. Um, but I think we're missing some of that strategy, some of the – there is creative brilliance coming up with the idea, hey, do you got a quick minute? And then all of a sudden you actually are doing something effective. What's your, I guess, advice on – I like everything you're saying. I have remote workers. I like remote workers. But I still want to capture the presence. What are some great ways or ways think about how to capture some of that creativity, the spark, uh, keeping the culture alive? You know, is it doing more retreats throughout the year or is it what are some ideas to keep that going but still stay efficient when we're here's remote? Some things, here's some of the things that I advise companies. And the first question is when someone says, hey, what are the best tools and things to enable remote work and things like that? I'll say, all right, well, let's start with let me see your culture document. And they'll look at me and they go, what do you mean? I'll tell you this, Matt. Companies with well-defined cultures where they've codified it. It's not, you know, just words on the wall. It is. What are the policies and procedures that back up that, those words on the wall? So you say that you're transparent. What are the policies that back that up? You say that you peer people come first. What are the policies that back that up? People that have a well-defined culture doc are more capable of enabling the trust that is necessary, regardless of where their people are. And that is how we start, because you can't have an effective team without trust. And in a lot of cases, that trust does need to be built face-to-face. But in some cases, and especially as teams evolve, it is the culture that helps build that glue, that trust that binds everyone together. Because once you have that, then you can start having those strategic discussions, those creative discussions. Those are the types of things that can be done remotely, but I would argue, and the data would tell us, are still more effectively done in person. And this is why when we look at the data, most remote workers, like 90%, live within a commutable distance of the office. They still go in from time to time. It's not this notion of, 
oh, we hired this person that lives, you know, on the other side of the world and we never see them. That's actually not what a remote worker is. A remote worker is, oh, they come in one day a week. They come in a couple days a month or things like that because we want to have that time to reinforce that trust, to reinforce that culture and to have those creativity discussions and those strategic discussions that really elevate business value. Yeah, I, I love that. I, I, I struggle as... You know, as a consultant as well, I go into companies and work, and I'm sure as you do, um, but then also as an employer, gosh, what does that hybrid really look like? And I love what you're saying. I never made the distinction of a remote worker being also still geographically desirable and still within a commuting distance. To me, that, I don't know, my mind got blown. That that changes the conversation because, again, you're not talking about, oh, I had, you know, Jane Smith in Idaho and I'm in New York and and it's just, hey she's on zoom and that's the end of the story no you're talking about having probably the same kind of a worker living in the same area but having the flexibility of maybe knocking off a few commute hours during the week but still being able to get face to face what are some ways that we can infuse culture and you know you said start with the culture document i love that how else can we begin infusing what we normally maybe would have as a again, quote unquote, vibe in the office, the, the how we interact with each other. How can we bring that into the remote space for those parts of the team that maybe don't come physically at all? That's something I've struggled with over the years is, you know, how do I really get that culture going? Well, look, getting it going in a remote context, I'm not going to, you know, I, I haven't seen a lot of things that are overly effective here. They are a challenge. Look, this is an evolving landscape, Matt. And one of the main points of the book is we need to look at history. We need to look at data. We need to talk to the company, think about how companies actually engage workers and do this stuff. And what we see through history is when we have big labor force shifts driven by economic depressions, by some sort of exogenous event, be it a war or a pandemic, it takes time. It takes time for processes to catch up because we have to start thinking about new ways to do things. It takes time for the tools to catch up. And we're in such a position now. From a historic perspective, we've had a huge shift in the labor force and how we do remote work. We've had a huge increase in the percent of remote workers in the United States. And we have to evolve the tools and the processes to enable that because right out of the gate, remote workforces, building trust and building culture right from the jump, really tough. What most companies were able to do is take an existing culture and a lot of trust and move it to a remote context. That worked well. Right. And again, companies with well-defined culture docs did better, but- Starting from scratch, that's a tough one, man. And yeah. shouldn't, people shouldn't pretend it's anything but tough. It is tough. You're, you're, you're blazing new ground. Yeah. Can we just real quick, I just want to chat about culture for one more second. Um, I think that's one of these vague, ominous words as well that, you know, someone like you, you studied this, you write about it, like this is your world. Um, but a lot of us out there, you know, you just go, oh, I, I want a good culture. And it's just a quote unquote culture, whatever that means. But I want to explain like culture is so much more than just, you know, do you have video games in the break room or is it teasing or encouraging or, you know, how are people interacting? Like one of the things I've done for culture is I, I did away with vacation time a long time ago and I just trust people. And I say, look, you can have unlimited vacation time, unlimited family time, unlimited sick time. What I ask is. We will have results we're committed to. We have sure. goals that we do together. Um, so if you need the time, take the time. But just make sure that you're honoring and, and being responsible for what we've set out as a team and then go nuts. And what I found is people actually take less time off because they feel like, I don't know what the feeling is, but would that... That's what I was thinking of. Does that fall into culture for you? Is that one of the aspects of how we treat each other in this company? 
and things like that, I feel like you can still do some of that stuff remote. Would that be fair to say? So here's how I define culture. And that's probably a better question to start with, isn't it? I may butcher this. (laughs) I may butcher this because, you know, (laughs) but it is who a company is, why they're there, where they're going and what they stand for as supported by their people, their policies, their procedures and their behaviors. And so, look, you can say that your company is transparent, that that's a, that's a key value of the company. But if you don't do things to support that, if you have closed calendars and everyone's in an office and no one can see where they are, then you're not transparent. Your policies and your behaviors don't support that value. And so the value is not a value. And now your team views you as inauthentic because they're like transparent. Uh, why does he keep saying that? We are completely not transparent. So you have to support the stuff. So the things like what you're talking about with a vacation policy that is based on trust, you know, and a, or, you know, take whatever time you want with a results oriented culture, yeah. which is, hey, I don't care how you get it done. We need to get it done. Just get her done. Okay. That is super important. And it's something that should be codified. And you back that up with, oh, wait, I, you know, you can work from wherever you want. That's a policy that backs up. Hey, I don't care how you get it done. We just, we're results oriented. You got to get it done. So you need to be consistent with that. You need to be authentic with who you are, why you're here, where you're going and what you stand for. Absolutely brilliant. Jeff, you have been, uh, this has just been such a great conversation. I wish we could keep going, but as we wind down here, uh, I'm talking with Jeff Wald, of course, uh, the founder of uh, Work Market, which has been sold to ADP, and the also the tech company Spinback, uh, sold to Salesforce. So he's been a huge, powerful startup in the tech world and in the finance world as well. The new book is called The End of Jobs, The Rise of On-Demand Workers and Agile Corporations. Um, last question, Jeff, and I know we got several more probably in, in the bank somewhere. The last question is, who is going to own the world in the workforce moving forward? That is that is a it's just it's a wide ranging question my man that is a that is a wide that's that's a beast right there yeah um, look you, we are going through a period of a transition that is redefining the power balance between companies and workers right now companies have more power than workers do in the overall picture where you're seeing a period of right at this exact moment as we end god willing in this pandemic here in the United States of workers being able to exert a little bit more influence And so you're seeing rising wages. So the history of work can be defined as this undulating power balance between companies and workers that uh, technology influences, social policy influences, but supply and demand influences more than anything. So I I think that uh, the future of work is going to be owned by whoever has the most power in the relationship, usually defined by that supply and demand balance. So if that that wasn't the the dorkiest answer you've ever gotten to that question, I don't know what would be. Jeff Wall, Mr. Data, I appreciate your opinions and I I appreciate your data coalition. I appreciate uh, you doing what you do. Um, you're awesome. Thanks so much, Jeff. Thanks so much, Ram. Hey, that, uh, that was the episode this week, of course. We're talking with Jeff Wald, and you can get the book, The End of Jobs, The Rise of On-Demand Workers and Agile Corporations. Find out about consulting with Jeff. Everything's at jeffwald.com. That's J-E-F-F-W-A-L-D, jeffwald.com. And don't forget to follow Jeff on LinkedIn at Jeff Wald or Twitter at Jeffrey Wald. He does go by Jeffrey on the Twitter. And I'm Matt Browning. You can find me at Matt Browning. German spelling B-R-A-U-N-I-N-G on all social media. Looking forward to seeing you next week. Another driven entrepreneur. All right. Enjoy the weekend. Bye-bye. 